War and Mindfulness, The Case Against Emoting, March 15th, 2022. The other day, someone on Twitter said this about me. I feel shocked by Robert's dissociated quality of thought lately. It's almost like he's autistic. I asked for elaboration and got this in reply. Dissociated, meaning disconnected from emotion. From your work on meditation and empathy, I'd have expected a much more visceral sense from you of how Ukrainians feel right now. I don't object to the indictment itself. It's true that, in writing about the Russia-Ukraine war, I haven't dwelt on the suffering of Ukrainians. It's also true, more broadly, that I haven't adopted the wartime tone that prevails on social media and in mainstream media. Though I've condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a clear violation of international law, and noted with obvious disapproval the increasing brutality of the attack, I haven't done much emoting about these things. So though disconnected from emotion is an exaggeration, I'm willing to plead guilty to the basic charge of often exhibiting atypically low war-related affect. But I do object to the framing of this indictment, specifically to two assumptions embedded in it. One, that the way I'm processing the Ukraine war, almost as if disconnected from emotion, is a bad way to process a war, somehow less healthy than the passionate processing you see on CNN and MSNBC and much of Twitter. Two, that, based on my work on meditation and empathy, you should expect a more emotional reaction from me. I think such an expectation reflects a misunderstanding both of mindfulness meditation, the variety of Buddhist meditation I've written about, and of the kind of empathy I've sermonized about. So I'm going to now challenge these assumptions and, in the process, try to do a jujitsu move, pivoting from defense to offense. I'm going to argue not only that a dispassionate state of mind in wartime has its virtues, but that it has more virtues than the prevailing state of mind. And I'm going to argue that mindfulness, which is, in an important sense, a relatively dispassionate state of mind, is close to being the ideal state of mind for navigating the landscape of war and peace. I think that if Americans were less reflexively emotional and more mindful, there would be fewer wars, and the current war would be less likely to metastasize into a regional war or, God forbid, go nuclear. This prescription goes double for those Americans who populate the American foreign policy establishment. The thing known to its detractors, including me, as the blob. I'm here to tell you that a more mindful blob would be a better blob. Before I get started, I want to emphasize that I'm not saying I'm a paragon of mindfulness. In fact, the blob is one thing I have trouble maintaining a mindful attitude toward. But there's no point in elaborating on that until I've said a bit more about what mindfulness is. So let's start with that question. What is mindfulness? But let's not answer it, at least not head on. Trying to provide a definitive answer could drag us into a welter of academic disagreement over such things as the full meaning of the ancient Pali term sati, the word translated as mindfulness, and the proper interpretation of the canonical Buddhist texts on mindfulness meditation, the Satipatthana Sutta. Instead, let's approach the meaning of mindfulness indirectly by talking about an interesting irony of mindfulness meditation. It can get you both closer to your feelings and further away from them. For example, 
If you're meditating and you have some negative emotion like anxiety or sadness, the kind of feeling you'd ordinarily try to push away or subdue or distract yourself from, the mindful response is to just accept it and observe it closely, even intimately. But one consequence of observing feelings up close is that, after a while, you can get some critical distance from them. This is empowering. Whereas feelings are something people normally obey more or less mindlessly, mindfulness practice can enhance your ability to ask, before following a feeling, whether it's giving you good guidance. Then you can act accordingly. I personally consider a war that involves a nuclear power, and that could any day now expand it to a war between nuclear powers, an especially bad time to be mindlessly obeying your feelings. For example, I think a lot of the people who are advocating a no-fly zone over Ukraine, apparently without reflecting on the fact that this would basically guarantee direct conflict between American and Russian forces, are being uncritically responsive to their feelings. The feelings themselves, such as outrage at Russia's brazen invasion of Ukraine, may be morally valid. But that doesn't mean they're good moral guides right now. I wish advocates of a no-fly zone were closer to being disconnected from emotion, as my Twitter critic put it, than they are, because then they might be better at coolly calculating the consequences of a no-fly zone. The subordination of thought to emotion has gone beyond discourse about the merits of a no-fly zone. For example, I haven't heard many people ask, is it possible that, in all but exhausting our arsenal of sanctions, We've left Putin feeling he has nothing left to lose. So he might, say, shell Ukrainian cities with ever more reckless abandon? Or, is it possible that such draconian sanctions will so threaten Putin politically that he urgently needs a dramatic win on the battlefield and might take some risk that could lead to wider war? I don't have an answer to these questions, but they seem worth asking. Yet so far as I can tell, they've gotten almost no airtime. And I think the main reason is that punishing Russia feels too good to question. If I had to guess what the three most potent policy-propelling feelings are right now, I'd go with 1. Moral indignation over Russia's transgressions 2. The attendant retributive impulse and 3. Empathy for Ukrainians I want to focus on the last of these, not just because it's the one my Twitter critic scolded me for not evincing, but also because it's a good vehicle for further exploration of the properties of mindfulness. There are two kinds of empathy. One, emotional empathy is empathy in the common sense of the term, feeling their pain, or in other ways identifying with people's emotions. Two, cognitive empathy is empathy in the sense of perspective taking, just understanding how people view the world. Cognitive empathy can, and should, involve understanding what feelings people are having, but it doesn't involve identifying with their feelings. I am, apologies to regular readers who have heard me say this three billion times, a big champion of cognitive empathy. I think we should apply it to friends, frenemies, and perhaps especially adversaries and enemies. Understanding the person on the other side of the negotiating table or the battle line is never a bad thing. Emotional empathy I'm more ambivalent about. Getting caught up in another person's emotions may be more laudable than getting caught up in your own emotions, but it can have the same narrowing effect on your perspective. It can make you so concerned about one person or one group of people that you lose sight of the interests of other people. 
If you want a list of ways emotional empathy can work against the greater good, I recommend the book Against Empathy by the psychologist Paul Bloom. There you'll also find an important point that Bloom makes. Shying away from emotional empathy doesn't necessarily mean ceasing to care about people's welfare. It can just mean trying to care about it in a slightly different way, substituting compassion for empathy. So what's the difference between compassion and empathy? To answer that question, Bloom turns to Buddhism. He notes a distinction made in Buddhist texts between sentimental compassion, which corresponds to what we would call emotional empathy, and great compassion, which is what we would simply call compassion. Great compassion, compared to emotional empathy, is more distanced and reserved. Bloom says compassion is less exhausting than emotional empathy and so can, according to some Buddhist thinkers, be sustained indefinitely. But for present purposes, a more important difference is that compassion, by virtue of being more distanced and reserved, is less likely to get you so absorbed in trees that you lose sight of the forest, with trees standing for a specific person or group of people, and forest standing for, say, all the people who would perish in a nuclear war. As I said, I am not a paragon of mindfulness. However, I've been on enough silent meditation retreats, generally lasting from one to two weeks, to spend time in a dramatically more mindful state than my norm, dramatic enough and memorable enough to keep me meditating daily in hopes of hanging on to some small measure of that mindfulness. And these occasional immersions in deep mindfulness allow me to report the following. Mindfulness affords a more expansive, more global awareness than ordinary consciousness. That's kind of ironic, since a mindful state also allows you to become deeply absorbed in highly local things. A taste, a sound, the texture of a brick in a wall. But there's a fluidity of awareness that makes it easy to then zoom out from trees to forest. This fluid, expansive awareness, I think, helps cultivate compassion, helps you have a concern for one person's well-being that doesn't come at the expense of your concern for another person's well-being. In case that sounds incomprehensibly fuzzy, here's a Ukraine war thought experiment that may crystallize the point. Presumably you, like me, feel something on the spectrum from compassion to emotional empathy when you see video of Ukrainians suffering under Russian aggression. Now, how do you feel when you see video of a Russian tank getting blown up? Do you feel a kind of gratification? Even though inside that tank there's a young Russian being burned alive, and even though he didn't join the army planning to invade Ukraine, and indeed may not have even known he was invading Ukraine until the moment he was ordered across the border, if I were to turn this thought experiment into a real experiment, here's the finding I would predict. People whose reaction to the suffering Ukrainian is closer to the empathy end of the empathy-compassion spectrum are more likely to cheer the immolation of the Russian tank. That's because emotional empathy, unlike compassion, leads you to identify with the feelings and hence the perspective of the Ukrainian victim, who naturally cheers the death of Russian invaders. Again, I'm far from being a walking embodiment of mindfulness, so I not infrequently find myself cheering the destruction of Russian tanks. But sometimes, when I'm able to stop, reflect, and widen my perspective, I don't have that celebratory reaction. And at those times, I've moved closer to a mindful perspective. I'm not valuing the welfare of suffering Ukrainians any less than before. I'm just no longer valuing it at the expense of the welfare of suffering Russians. Note, here's one more irony. 
an irony not about mindfulness, but about Buddhism more broadly. On the one hand, feeling compassion for both the Ukrainian and the Russian is a very Buddhist thing. After all, central to Buddhist ethics is that the suffering of any sentient being is bad. But that doesn't mean no good Buddhist could support blowing up the tank. Buddhist ethics have a pragmatic and consequentialist bent. Since punishing aggressors could reduce aggression in the long run, such punishment might be justified as reducing overall human suffering. In that case, the suffering of the punished person would be regrettable but, in the larger scheme, a regrettable necessity. As I've said, when the subject turns from emotional empathy to cognitive empathy, my attitude turns from ambivalent to wholly supportive. Know your enemy, and know everyone else. I think cognitive empathy can help us reach deals that end wars, and I think it can help prevent wars from happening in the first place. Indeed, I've argued that, had the makers of U.S. foreign policy exercised cognitive empathy toward Russia more robustly over the past 25 years, the whole Ukraine crisis might have never happened, much less turned into a war. I've also argued that this kind of cognitive empathy deficit is a generic problem, that, in the American foreign policy establishment, failing to completely grasp how the world looks from beyond America's shores is more or less standard procedure. So it brings me great pleasure to inform you that mindfulness meditation can help cultivate cognitive empathy. Unfortunately, I don't have any data to back that assertion up, unless you count personal experience as data, which you shouldn't. And laying out my theoretical argument for this proposition would move this piece from the too-long category to the way-too-long category. So for now, we'll have to leave this claim for the power of mindfulness in the claim department. Then again, that's also the status of the other things I've said here about the virtues of mindfulness. I'm pretty much asking you to take my word for them. If you want a more fully fleshed-out argument for the power of mindfulness, there's a book I recommend. Meanwhile. I hope you can see why, given my belief in the power of mindfulness, I consider it such a valuable weapon against war. One, I think it helps liberate our thought from emotions that can catastrophically mislead us during war, see no-fly zone above, and that can get us into wars in the first place. Two, I think it can help us substitute compassion for emotional empathy, thus discouraging morally myopic calculations. Three. I think it can help foster cognitive empathy, the dearth of which, I believe, has been responsible for war after war after war. All of which in turn helps explain why I believe a more mindful blob would be a better blob, a less blobbish blob. Speaking of the blob, at the outset of this piece, when I quoted my Twitter critic, I left out the final sentence of that second tweet. Here's the full version of the tweet. Dissociated, meaning disconnected from emotion. From your work on meditation and empathy, I'd have expected a much more visceral sense from you of how Ukrainians feel right now. Instead, your critique of the blob, which I admire, has seemed to dominate your reaction to this war. Again, guilty as charged, I've spent a lot of time since the Ukraine crisis began a couple months ago criticizing the makers of U.S. foreign policy. Not just for, in my view, helping to create the crisis but also for steering America towards so many violations of international law that our condemnation of Russia's transgressions carries less force than it otherwise would. Unfortunately for me, these kinds of criticisms are in deep disrepute these days. They're seen as diverting blame from Vladimir Putin, 
and or as an example of the dreaded whataboutism. Here's a surprise. I've actually invested my critique of the blob with a fair amount, at least by my standards, of emotional energy. So, in a way, my Twitter critic isn't complaining about a complete disconnect from emotion. The complaint is rather that I'm not channeling my emotion through the officially approved conduits, not concentrating my outrage on the approved targets. I like to think that my choice of targets reflects a well-founded belief that the U.S. foreign policy establishment has deep deficiencies that urgently need fixing. So urgently that we can't stop talking about them just because talking about them at this particular moment is even more unfashionable than usual. But I admit that I may be at times... But I admit that I may at times be too hard on the blob, that my passion may sometimes cloud my judgment, that maybe there's something about the blob that, for me, impedes mindfulness. Owing to the pandemic, it's been a while since I've done a meditation retreat. So, though disconnected from emotion is an exaggeration, I'm willing to plead guilty to the basic charge of often exhibiting atypically low war-related affect. But I do object to the framing of this indictment, specifically to two assumptions embedded in it. If you want a more fully fleshed out argument for the power of mindfulness, I recommend my book, Why Buddhism is True, 